Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. What is our love affair with Mars, Rod? It's just captured our imagination, doesn't it? It has since the very first days of man on Earth, as they like to say at a lot of book openings. And, you know, I think part of it is just the color of the planet. It is this real scarlet, ruddy red, and it looks like almost nothing else in the night sky. And the motions of it against the starry background were kind of odd when it would go into retrograde, uh, retrograde occasionally and start moving backwards in its path through the sky. So this really baffled the ancients. And then as, as we came along and began to realize the planets were places and not gods back in the day of Galileo and after, it was fascinating for another reason, because it was fairly close to Earth. It appeared to be terrestrial-like Earth, so it was a rocky planet, as far as we can tell. And, of course, the conjecture then, and this lasted up until the time that you and I were, were kids, mm-hmm. was that the solar system was kind of a fun and jolly place, and the other planets might be a little, a little different than Earth, but with some breathing apparatus and some warm clothing, and maybe a light pressure suit, you could walk around Mars, and there were even thoughts that Venus might have swamps and dinosaurs. And as you know, the solar system turned out to be a lot bleaker than that. But uh, Mars is still the next best shot we've got. You know, other than Earth and the moon for proximity only, Mars is the one place where you can think of going and actually establishing a second civilization. So I think that's what captures so many people's romantic notions about it. Uh, it's just, it's a planet that just is. Uh since the beginning of time, captured our imagination. It really is. I think the technology behind these robots is absolutely staggering, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine this, Rod, that millions and millions of miles away, they send these probes and they're able to communicate with them, they're able to control them. It's just incredible technology. It is, and, and now it's billions of miles. I mean, Ultima Thule, the target for New Horizons after Pluto, is almost 4 billion miles away with a B. And you're threading the needle, you know, you're, you're, you're flying a few thousand miles from these worlds after years and years and years of travel. The slightest error can put you way off base, either slamming into the body or more likely flying way past it out of range. So the ability to do this is astonishing. And even more astonishing to me is the, that the computers on board these spacecraft are fairly obsolete. They're old chips. They're the, the chip on New Horizons was first baseline at about 1990. But the thing is that even though these are fairly primitive processors by today's standards, when you're flying outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, and especially the outer solar system, where there's a lot of radiation both from the sun and from beyond our solar system, these chips need to be hardened like they would be for, for nuclear conflict. So they buy chips that have been specially hardened by the military. They're anywhere from a half million to a million dollars apiece. Wow. So even though they're decades old, the programming is so lean and mean and exquisite that they're able to do all these functions with a light time, you know, one-way radio message travel time of six, seven, eight hours. So it really is mind-boggling. And every time I go up to JPL and talk to those people, it's everything I can do kind of not to get down on bended knee and just bow my head at their, at their brilliance because they really do incredible work, as now are the Europeans and the Indians recently, yes, and now the sure. Chinese on the far side of the moon. Chinese seem to be old, coming uh, along like crazy, aren't they? Yeah, they're going gangbusters. Well, you know, all they have to do is decide. I mean, you've got a president that's either in term for 10 years or for life, depending on which one you're talking about. You can keep kind of a stable trajectory going, so they are bound to determine 
to get to the moon with more robots, to get to the moon with humans, probably in the late 2030s, early 2040s, somewhere in there. And uh, they're looking at the resources there. There's a lot of stuff up there that can be used because it's expensive to launch stuff off of Earth. So when you've got water ice on the moon and metals and glass and oxygen in the soil, which you do, um, you might as well use those things up there instead of carrying all that along with you. And now working in the solar system and staying there becomes a lot easier and a lot more feasible. So that's what they're headed for. I had a story yesterday that Russia and China might be working on space weaponry to take out our satellites. Have you heard anything about that? Oh, yeah, that's, that's quite a conversation in the, in the defense and space industry community. So, uh, you know, we've all done our share of that. We've experimented with that. The Russians have experimented with it for decades. I mean, even back in the 60s and 70s, there was work going on in those areas. It's just a lot more sophisticated now. I think what's scaring people is the Chinese have come fairly far, fairly fast, and they're putting a lot of effort into it. So we've kind of curtailed, as far as we know in the public, most of our anti-satellite efforts. Not so sure about the Russians and the Chinese. And so much of what we do, not just in in America, not just for the military, but day-to-day commerce, regulating the power grid, overseeing transportation, banking, all these things depend on satellites to monitor the transactions and transmit time-based frequencies back and forth and so forth. So you need to have this grid of satellites up there. If they start getting picked off and knocked out, not only do you no longer have the high view for military purposes, but now you also have a real impact on commerce and civilian welfare. So I think that's what the big concern is. And the general feeling even amongst the people that are more liberal in their attitude towards this, is we're behind and we sort of need to catch up. Whether that's a defensive or offensive strategy is another conversation. What's so amazing, Rod, is we landed on the moon almost 50 years ago with uh, with our first astronauts. 50 years ago. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. And nobody has been able to get close to us for a half a century. Well, now they're starting to come along. But look how far advanced we were. Why didn't we take advantage of that? Well, the Apollo program, you'll hear a lot of people talk about it as being this galvanizing force that got the nation headed in one direction on this march towards landing a man on the moon. And that was largely true within government and industry and academia. But when you look at public opinion throughout those years, from Gallup polls and so forth, it, it went up and down quite a bit. So the support wasn't always there. Congress reflects the public opinion, of course. So the feelings there were somewhat the same. I think what made Apollo work was two things. One, it was a, a stake driven in the ground in a geopolitical struggle between us and the Soviet Union. It wasn't as much about science as it was about showing who had the technological goods, who could achieve this, this incredible mission. And Kennedy chose the landing specifically because his advisors told him it was something we might be able to do first if we were just talking about space stations or lunar flybys that the Soviet Union might beat us. So the moon landing was something we thought we could do. Uh, but the other part of it, is that there's just been a lack of of national willpower to go back. We kind of achieved this thing with this very primitive technology by today's standards. It's amazing to me it worked as well as it did. And when you think we're almost as far, it's not going to be too long before we we are as far away from that first moon landing as it was from the Wright brothers' first flight to the Seahawks. That's true. That's kind kind of gobsmacking moment there when you think that. And you wonder, you know, what have we been doing all that time in, in between? And the truth of it is, we spent that time in Earth orbit. We built this magnificent space station with international partners that goes overhead every 90 minutes. The thing is huge. 
It's the biggest and most expensive machine ever made, and it's been functioning for almost 20 years. So a lot of good research has happened up there. We've learned a lot more about space and the solar system and, and living in weightless conditions since that time. And one of the things that's made it tough is those short sojourns to the moon and back, they only lasted a week or two, didn't expose the astronauts to the full panoply of dangers that the solar system holds. But as we've learned more about space, we've learned that it's a tough thing to do. There's a lot of radiation out there. There's what happens to the human body and long-term weightless exposure, all kinds of things that we have to learn how to mediate before we can start taking these longer trips. So between that and the budget cuts, because NASA's operating at a tenth of what it was in the 60s now and doing a lot more with that small amount of money, it's a tough slog. I think it was great seeing Buzz Aldrin at the President's State of the Union address. <laughs> that Isn't that cool? Yeah. I mean, there he is, the really the second man to walk on the moon, but with uh, Neil Armstrong gone, he's the guy. He, you know, he's, the, he he's basically the first person left who walked on the moon. He is, and, I, and I've been writing a little bit about this, talking about this year being first men, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, they trained together, they landed together, they explored together. Who put their foot in the dust first shouldn't really be as big a deal as it is, in my opinion. I agree. And secondly, I think the movie First Man, if you saw it, really gave Buzz kind of an unfair shake. I mean, he was different than the other guys. He was extremely intellectual, still is. Yep. Um, He's tough. Very focused. Huh? He's tough. He's got a temper when he wants to. Yeah. But he was extremely focused on orbital dynamics and getting the job done. But if it wasn't for Buzz, there's a good chance they would not have mastered EVA, spacewalking activities, during Gemini, because he was really the one that pushed the agenda of underwater training to make sure that they were ready on Gemini 12, the last one, to get that done. And the previous attempts hadn't worked out very well. So he really he kind of closed the loop on that. And the other thing I would like to credit him with is He's one of the few guys from that cadre of, of Apollo astronauts. They've all gone off and done wonderful things since they came back to Earth. But he's one of the few that's really continued to fly the flag promoting space exploration, human exploration, the solar system, continually since then, year after year, day after day. That's what he talks about. That's what he thinks about. I get on the phone with him a few times a year. We talk for hours. And that is what is in the forefront of his mind all the time. And I really respect that. Rod, did you know Edgar Mitchell when he was alive, Apollo 14 astronaut? He's one of the few I didn't meet, and I think you talked to him quite a yeah, bit, Yeah, right? we knew him well, and uh, he, yeah, he was a believer in extraterrestrial presence, uh, though he told me, he said, he, I never saw anything on the moon, George, or anything like that, but I have talked to people within government who have told me that we are being visited by extraterrestrials. And hearing that from an Apollo 14 astronaut was absolutely staggering. Yeah, a lot of people were staggered in different ways. But I, you know, I think one of the things that I admired so much about him, there was two. One, he tried that ESP experiment during the flight, yep. which would not have been popular if it had been widely known. But it showed he had an open mind and was a progressive thinker. And also, he was famously quoted as... Uh, he, there's a quote from him about politicians, about politics on Earth, saying he wanted to take a, a politician by the scruff of the neck, take him up to space, and say, look at that, you son of a beep, while pointing his face down at the Earth. 
to get them to understand that it's a delicate, fragile planet. There are no borders drawn between between nations. They're put there artificially. And who, he really just became, a number of them did, but especially Mitchell, an incredible humanist. Oh, he sure was. Program. And then he came back and started. test pilot. Yeah. You know? And he started the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And did you know Chuck Yeager's still alive? He's 96 yeah. years old. Yeah. Isn't that He's amazing? guy. It is. And, you know, there's, there's somebody who's seen it all. I've done it all and been through a lot. If I if I were to talk to him, I would be I wouldn't do it, but I would be tempted to say, Did you ever think again about maybe you should join NASA and give him that a shot? Yeah, I was gonna you know, I was gonna say degree, what? So probably couldn't have. But. Is that why he did not become an astronaut? It's hard to say. You know, if you believe Tom Wolf, it's because he thought the whole enterprise was silly. I, I imagine there was more to it than that, but you had to have a college degree and be a certified test pilot. So he had one, but not the other. And I think that was probably one of the mediating factors, but he also loved test, test pilot. He loved that. And was very good at it. He he may have been the best. Yeah. An incredible eyesight, incredible reflexes. So it may have just made more sense to keep doing what he was doing. And you know, any of these guys, regardless of what mission they were on and what they did and what service they worked with, they've done so much more in, 10 minutes of their lives, and I've done with most of mine, but I can't even imagine the feeling of satisfaction you must have. What's the future of manned space for us, Rod? What are we going to do? Well, what we're looking at now on the government side with NASA is building a, a station, another station, smaller than the ISS, but another station out in lunar orbit from which we can start making sorties down to the surface. They just announced yesterday at a news conference that... Uh, they wanted to start getting bids from private industry to build landers. So there is this, this notion of going back to the moon before Mars. There are some people that think it's a good idea. There are some people that aren't thrilled with that idea because they think it's going to slow us down. But Mars is a long ways away, oh my five, God, six yeah. months. Uh, very difficult to do technically. Doable, but difficult. And once you're there, you can only stay for a month or you've got to stay for much longer, depending on, on which... There's a, there's a certain window, right, that you, that right, you get. Right, right. So you want to make sure if you're going to go there that you're ready to stay for the long haul so you can get work done. Because humans are very efficient and effective in the field. They're way quicker than robots. So um, the moon makes sense. So that's, that's the target for NASA. And then, as you know, with private industry, you've got Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk famously striving with their rockets. And... You know, it's a little bit like, I feel like I'm watching Destination Moon in the 1950s all over again, where this rich industrialist says, yeah, I'm going to build a rocket. How hard could it be? And it was harder than he thought, but they've both done it. They're both mastering it. Uh, Musk is a little more public about what he's doing. Bezos is taking a very slow, measured course. But Bezos is putting a million dollars of his own money into this every year. So I think what we're seeing coming along is this going to be this sweet spot between NASA's involvement with a certain amount of public funding, and guidance and the initiatives to explore and go beyond, and then public industry coming in behind them and doing the things that public industry does, or that private industry does so well, which is transporting materials to orbit, possibly transporting people to the moon back and forth, commercializing this arena, making money at it, and beginning to build an infrastructure in orbit and between the Earth and the moon in this area they call cislunar space. So that you've got fuel depots and you've got way stations and you've got robots working out there paving the way for people to come along and do what they do best. So that between those two entities and the international sector in cooperation with various countries, hopefully with China someday, 
we can really see this thing come to fruition much quicker. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.